Welcome to Franklin and Marshall College's Cecil's Research Spotlight, where you can hear stories about how FNM faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. Cecil, the Center for Sustained Engagement with Lancaster, funds research to create positive change around the natural environment, poverty and social inequality, and with community-based art. I'm Dr. Nancy Curlin, an Associate Professor of Organizational Studies and one of the faculty co-directors. The center was created with the generous funding from the Endeavor Foundation. Each episode, we'll highlight the research of one of our grant recipients. Today, we're going to be talking with FNM Professor of Geosciences, Dr. Andy DeVette, and with VP of Operations and Conservation at the Lancaster Conservancy, Ms. Jen Tison, for their project entitled Land Stewardship and Environmental Sustainability in Lancaster County. Hey, Andy. Hey there. Yeah, you can hear me and I can hear you. Good. So. Hi, Jen. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Let's get started. Andy, I wonder if you could start off by just telling me about the research project, give us, giving us an overview of the project itself. Yeah, so the initial idea was to pick a location somewhere in Lancaster County to look at a watershed and to think about the watershed in terms of uh, small scale individual bends and, and um, sections of a stream then thinking about a broader scale stream reaches and then thinking about the whole landscape and the whole watershed to think about um, the conditions of the watershed, what's, what's going on right now, and then um, putting that into a historical context. You know, streams, in some ways, I think of streams as sort of the canary in the, in the coal mine, the sort of canary in the landscape. What streams are dynamic systems and they're responding to all these changes that are happening in the landscape. And so, Looking at streams, it gives you an idea of, of what's, happen, what's happening in the landscape now and what's happened in the past. So the idea of the project was to pick a, pick a location in Lancaster County um, in collaboration with the Conservancy, because of course the Conservancy has lots of preserves and properties in the, in the county and pick one that would be of mutual interest to us. <clears throat> and then, and then you know, do a project in that area. Um, I would, I'm sort of a, you know, a theoretical geologist, I guess, and the conservancy is very, very applied and practical, right? They are looking, they're managing and looking after preserves and looking at expanding those preserves perhaps. So it would be a good sort of collaboration to think about the landscape from a, from a theoretical standpoint, from an academic standpoint, and then uh, seeing how that might relate to the practical on the ground kind of um, management of preserves and so on. So. So that's how the project, that's how I imagined the project. Um, I didn't really have a good idea of location when I first started it, but through talking to the Conservancy, we picked, um, decided that Fishing Creek down in the southern part of the county would be a good location. Jen, if you could tell us more about your role with the Conservancy and how the decision-making process evolved so that you picked uh, the site that you all did pick. Yeah, so when Andy first approached the Conservancy with this project, um, I invited our other GIS technician at the time, Christian, to the conversation um, from the stewardship side. I am originally from the land protection side of the conservancy. So I look at prioritizing the lands that we acquire, um, going through the process of analyzing them with mapping, field visits, things of that sort, and building our prioritization method to get projects from start to finish. 
Um, whereas the stewardship counterpart, um, once we get the property, they care for it and they maintain it you know, in perpetuity as the mission of the conservancy goes. So we really wanted to pick a project that would help the conservancy do something that we couldn't normally do that would increase our capacity. And um, the Fishing Creek project was a really easy identification with the recent issues that have been going on down there. Um, the preserve is really, really cool if you haven't been there before. There's a, a public road that goes right through it. So you, if you don't wanna hike, you don't have to hike. Uh, and it's really scenic and beautiful, but that attracts a lot of different attention than we're used to with our preserves. And so that preserve attracted a lot of off-roading. People would drive off the road into the stream. You actually cross the stream three times when you go through that property. So we've experienced a lot of erosion, um, people coming from out of state just to go through the streams with their vehicles. Um, and they really sort of changed the way that the stream functions over time with the different species that would live there. The invasive species there were becoming a big problem. We were having issues getting the understory to grow in that preserve. So we really wanted to see, to use this opportunity to work with the FNM students and Andy to, to look at the changes in this stream over time because we've owned this preserve for several decades. Um, it's got a really cool history in that aspect. Uh, so we wanted to see what major changes were happening in this landscape and how to plan for the future and what restoration work to do there. Um, and I think the, the preliminary results from the study are gonna be really, really helpful for that. So Andy, yeah, if you could tell us more about, based on what Jem was just talking about in terms of, we're hearing about the impact, what are you doing in terms of, I asked you before about the history and, and so on of the, of the landscape and just tell us more about what exactly you and the students are doing. Yeah, so um, you know, initially we th I thought that I'd probably spend some time in the in the county preserves to look at the streams there, but it, but so far for the project, I've really focused on um, areas outside of the preserves. And part of the reason for that is when we first started to when I first started to look at the streams, I realized that um, a very interesting thing was happening with many of the small um, tributaries into the main fishing creek, and that is that they the patterns of the of the channels are changing and they're changing over time. Um, and um, it, was, it was sort of an interesting question to think about why those changes were occurring. So that requires, um, you know, careful uh, GIS analysis, collection of data, uh, georeferencing of historical photographs. This is all pretty time consuming. It's probably not something really the conservancy can, can do. So it seemed like it was, would be a very productive thing to start with that. So, so, so far I've really focused on streams outside of the preserve, but the preserves are basically in the lower parts of the forested lower parts of the watershed. So um, everything that happens in the watershed will impact the, the preserves ultimately. So, so how are they changing? Just to, you said they're changing. So, so um, looking at the historical photographs is very interesting. The streams were very, very straight in the past and have become more and more meandering. So that's sort of the takeaway message. Um, and this is, this is not a surprise. This has happened to many, many streams in Lancaster County, partly because early on in the 1900s, a lot of streams were realigned, were straightened um, to facilitate farming and so on. So that's not a natural, um, uh, arrangement for the streams. The streams really want to meander down through their floodplains. Um, so straightening the streams immediately put these all the streams out of equilibrium. Mm. So since the 19, early 1900s, most of these streams are now been trying to reestablish a more meandering pattern. Um, 
and we see that very clearly in so many of these these tributaries. Um, and and the places to really see this are the places where then where there aren't any forests. So in basically agricultural areas, because probably the forested streams were not impacted. So um, the, you know the streams that I looked at, um, I looked at twelve different time slots um, over time, and documented the changes in the stream. So. Um, as I said, this is not a surprise what is happening, but I think that this is a really cool data set because it's really collecting some concrete, um, detailed information about how the streams have changed. And that has revealed some sort of pretty surprising, interesting things. So we can talk a little bit more about that, but- I wanna hear um, that in just a second. I wanna know, how. what was the time slots that you chose? How, so 12, 12 different times from 1940, which are the earliest aerial photographs um, mm -hmm. of the in the county all the way up to 2019. Okay, and so, so now what have you been finding? So um, the streams have definitely been established, trying to reestablish the meandering pattern. So they, they basically been out of it, they were pushed out of equilibrium through this process of realignment. Um, but, but so they've been reestablishing the meandering pattern. That means that their, um, their length of a, of a stream reach, which is just a section of a stream, maybe a few hundred meters, for example, the length of the stream has been increasing. Um, the gradient has been decreasing um, and the meandering, the sinuosity of the streams has been increasing. So it, it's the, the streams are basically trying to reestablish much more of a natural pattern, much more of a pattern that's in equilibrium with, uh, with the um, current situation in the landscape. So that's, that's pretty interesting. But a couple of really interesting things that you can see from the data is one thing is that they, the, the reestablishment of this equilibrium seems to be accelerating. So I was surprised. I thought that maybe the streams would be nearing equilibrium now after 60, 70, 80 years of, of natural processes, you would think these streams would be you know, nearing equilibrium, but they seem to actually all be changing more and more rapidly. And that rate of change seems to have accelerated since the 1990s. So I think that raises some really interesting questions about what is happening in the landscape that's probably you know, causing this change. Um, and then there is a very interesting location where they've restored one section of the stream. So this provides us with a very nice um, sort of study site to, to look at that, that area and, and look at it and see what's happened now, look at how it changed in the past and then think about monitoring that in the future. So, so one of the things about the streams changing their patterns is it may result in increased sediment load. So more sediment being transported maybe more nutrients. Um, these are all things that impact uh, water quality. And of course, since the, the county preserves are all downstream, the, the preserves will then see the impact of these changes in the um, upper reaches of the, of the watershed. So, so it has very much an, you know, an, a relevance for the, for the county, pre county preserves. But, but I think the data so far is, is raising some very interesting questions. It's, it's, as I said, it's not a surprise that the streams are you know, trying to reestablish a more natural arrangement, but, but I think what's very interesting is how that change is occurring. And it might suggest, to a, you know, there might be um, predictions that we can try and make about how these streams are gonna change into the future, which I think is really interesting. I'm going to come back to that idea of predictions. I'd like to hear that, but I'm going to bring Jen back in and ask her to maybe she can elaborate 
on what the impact would be on the conservancy lands? Yeah, as, as Andy alluded to, um, you know, the things that happen upstream from our properties absolutely affect what happens downstream. And if, if this study identifies that we could be in for some more erosion, sediment load, um, bringing, being brought down into our stream, we need to prepare for that and do some additional restoration work, um, you know, maybe shade the streams more so that a little additional oxygen can get into the stream for the fish that live in there. It, it is a native brook trout stream and they stock it every year with the Fish and Boat Commission. Uh, we actually had just this spring, a, a bunch of trout were released in the, in the stream and it's a really popular fishing destination because of the proximity of the road there. So if we're anticipating that these streams upstream are gonna be meandering more, dropping more sediment in, we wanna be prepared for that in our management planning. And so that's one other reason that this study is gonna be really useful is it will help us develop those long-term management plans um, and target areas to restore more than others. Um, and, and we're really interested too in how the land use around forested properties affects forested properties themselves. There's actually studies being conducted by the Open Space Institute right now that we're really interested in the results for with how um, land use affects water quality. And one of those land uses is what the conservancy focuses on, which is natural land, including forests. So this study goes right in line with, with the work that the Open Space Institute is doing that we're really looking forward to receiving results for. What is the Open Space Institute? Um, it's a large research and funding institute that does a lot more work in the Delaware watershed these days. Um, but they, they used to work more in Lancaster County area. I think they're, they're less focused on the Chesapeake Bay at this point, but the research um, is fairly consistent. I mean, we can, we can use that to sort of reach out into our area right now. Um, but they're doing a lot of meta-analyses, looking at other literature reviews, um, getting a lot of, uh, of that data and, and looking at how they work together or apart. And they've had some really interesting preliminary results already that we worked into the, um, the model that we use to prioritize our land protection. It's the Lancaster York Natural Area Scoring. We use GIS to put that together. And um, the students on this project, I think, looked at that in the beginning. Uh, and so the results from this study, depending on how far reaching they are, could also impact our, um, our land protection priorities in the future as well. Great. So uh, going back to you, Andy, I wonder if you can talk more about uh, predictions. So, I mean, uh, there's, there's every indication that these streams will continue to do what they're doing right now, which will be to increase their meandering pattern. So um, I think that that could result in increased sediment load and more, and more nutrients into the stream system. Um, on the other hand, um, it also depends on exactly what's happening along these stream reaches. So it is possible for farmers, for example, to, impl for example, to implement different um, methods to control erosion along the stream banks and so on. So um, there are ways that this could be mitigated. And I think that the more information that we have, the, the, the more robust those kinds of responses can be. So um, the, the, the enhanced meandering is not a good thing? You, I, Oh, oh, no, it can be very good. I mean, it can be very good because it's reducing the gradient of the streams, which reduces the erosive power of it. Um, so, but the, the, one of the issues here is that there is all this, what is called legacy sediment in a lot of these floodplains. These, this is sediment that eroded off the, off the uh, landscape over the last several centuries since European settlers came in and deforested the area. 
So we are seeing um, an enormous amount of sediments sitting in these floodplains that could be mobilized and removed mm. um, through this process. So um, it's one of these sort of multifaceted situations where there's so many different things that have happened in the past at different timescales um, and that the streams are now responding to all of that. And it's sort of interesting to kind of unravel each one of those different forcing factors to really understand how things will look in the future. So in general stream, you know, streams reestablishing their meandering patterns is a good thing because that's what these streams look like in the past. Um, but one of the challenges is that these the floodplains are not the same as they were in the past. They, they are clogged with all this, what is called legacy sediment. So that, that's, that's part of the story here of you know, how this is gonna play out in the future. And, and one of the things I'm actually, I think that the uh, Conservancy is very interested in, and I'm, I'm interested in as well, is, is the, some of the changes that are gonna happen in the future, for example, climate change, right? So we, we may be looking at increased precipitation. We certainly are already seeing increased temperatures. So um, there's, there's that aspect. Um, coupled with that is invasive species. So there's lots of issues now with all kinds of invasive species. Of course, Lancaster County is hit with spotted lanternfly, um, the demise of all the ash trees through, through the emerald ash borer. I mean, these are all changes that we're seeing right now and you know, they are gonna continue into the future. We are gonna continue to see those impacts. So, um, you know, in terms of predicting the future, you know, that's the, that's the hard part, right? But, but I think that the more that we know about what's happening now and how we got to the present situation will help us in trying to cope with what's gonna happen in the future, so. And then of course there's land use change, right? Um, and the land use change could be part of, uh, for example, the Conservancy acquiring more property, more preserves. There could be you know, a very, very positive land use change in the, in the watershed that will mitigate you know, some of these issues. So, so there's multiple things going on. I'm, I'm not sure about predictions, but <laughs> um, I think that the more we know now, the better we can cope with those changes that are absolutely certainly, certainly coming in, in this watershed and across the whole landscape. So, so I'll put in a plug, the episode eight, the previous episode, um, I interviewed Bob and Dorothy on their work with legacy sediment. So is there some overlap then you're talking about with your work and their work? Absolutely. I mean, legacy sediment has been well established now. Um, you know, Bob and Dorothy's work and, and some stuff that I did, you know, 10 years ago, we, you know, well, this, the, the understanding of the issues surrounding this is, is, is uh, well established now. You know, the issues related to nutrients, to water flow and so on, or set and sediment. Um, and of course, this is in the context of the Chesapeake Bay as well. <laughs> you know, that's the broader context of some of this. Um, so that, that's absolutely, you know, these, these, the issue that I've been dealing with at Fishing Creek is definitely re absolutely related to that, so. How large is Fishing Creek, by the way? How many acres are we talking about? Uh, 14 square miles. I'm not sure how many acres that is. I could give you the numbers somewhere. <laughs> that's fine, gives me an idea. The, the Conservancy, I believe, has about three and a half percent of the, of the whole watershed preserved. So it's actually quite a small, pro, you know, percentage and, um, I think there's lots and lots of opportunity perhaps to expand that, that preservation, either through direct preservation through the Conservancy or through ag preservation, for example. So I'm sure- Jay Yeah, we, we have two preserves that sit right on Fishing Creek. One is about 150 acres and one is about 170 acres. The larger one is the one with the street going through it. A really, really beautiful drive there. Um, but 
but Andy's right that we would certainly be interested in expanding those preserves, connecting them. We always try and connect up the river upstream from, from where our property currently sits because what happens upstream eventually comes downstream. Um, so, so this study could help us prioritize those lands even further to say which, which ones might have the biggest impact on this, this really high quality stream that we want to protect. Is the remaining, is that privately owned or is that publicly owned that land? I, would, I think most of it is privately owned. I'd have to double check into that, but um, we were pretty close to acquiring a property down there uh, about a year ago, but it got scooped up before we could, could get there. So a lot of it's luck and a lot of it is doing proactive work. Um, and you know that takes time too. So we wanna get our ducks in a row as soon as we can. Got it. So what are some of the policy implications of your research? Um, oh, well, you know, what, what, one of the things that's really impressive, I think, about the, Lang the County Conservancy is how data-driven they are in terms of what they do. So that's been a really impressive thing to see. Um, their use of high technology like, you know, GIS analysis and then the development of these tools to prioritize properties is, is, uh, is really, you know, amazing. And, um, but of course, as Jen just alluded to, sometimes it's just luck. You know, it's not, you're not, you, even though you might prioritize a certain location as being, you know, that's the, that's something we want, definitely would like to preserve. Sometimes it's just depends on what's, what property might become available, what might be don donated or whatever. Um, so, you know, the policy implications, you would love to be able to make choices based purely on, you know, information on data, right? These are the places, these are the highest priority places to preserve. So, I mean, hopefully the study will help with that. Um, but, 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 you know, in practicality, probably in many cases, what, you know, it'll be just by luck what areas are preserved. But as I said, the, the, the Conservancy is, has this amazing database that they're using to try and prioritize their acquisition of properties. And, and it's very, very, um, you know, data-driven. So, uh, you know, I, I think that a study like this, it just goes into that mix of information that's used to make decisions. So. I would reflect um, what what Andy just said, and you know some of the discussions that we're having at the conservancy is, is what's the the future, the next steps. You know we've preserved a lot of the really large properties now, and so um, there are a few big properties remaining that could make new preserves or make really big impactful additions to existing preserves. But which of the smaller properties should we target? Um, we're running into problems now where open land, even small open land properties are becoming more and more rare. So we have to you know, choose between a property with a building on it. And is, it, is this property really worth protecting with all the extra costs and management decisions that come with owning a building? Or this property is 50% ag and 50% forest. Normally we would never have protected ag before, but is this something that maybe we should consider protecting because of the impacts um, on the other properties that we already preserve. So studies like this could certainly have policy implications for the conservancy as we start to look into our future and where we focus our work. But beyond that too, it's just the policy is how we manage our land that we do own. Um, and I think that's where the biggest um, benefits to the conservancy lie for this type of work as well. So I have a few questions that um, your conversation has prompted in me. Um, what are the criteria then for choosing? You've named, named several, right? Well, you go ahead. Yeah, so um, we have a model that's based on a 100 point scale. 
30 of those points go to the quality of the watershed itself. So which watershed the property sits within. So in this case, um, if we were gonna add to one of our Fishing Creek nature preserves, it sits in this Fishing Creek watershed that um, this GIS study is based in. So we look at the, the indications of how healthy that water is based on the different categories of land use that make up the majority of that watershed. So things like agriculture, natural surface cover, impervious cover. And then we also look at actual data collected on the ground, um, which streams are high quality, how many high quality streams and waterways are in that watershed. So the watershed gets a score that then the property gets. And then we look inside the property and see, well, how big is the property? What types of other lands that are preserved is it next to? Farmland, um, other natural lands, community parks, things like that. Um, and that gets a certain number of points that scores about 20% of the total available points. And then we look at the quality of the habitat on the property. If it has um, high biodiversity, if it has any endangered species that are indicated to be there based on the habitat that's there, does it contain a water resources? We always prioritize properties with wetlands or streams on them, especially if they're high quality. Uh, and of course we want properties that have a high percentage of natural surface cover. Um, so that's the bulk of the points that a property can get. Uh, that's about 40% based on the quality of the habitat within it. We also, part of our mission at the Conservancy is uh, community engagement, getting the public out onto properties, especially during you know, this COVID time has really highlighted the need for open space in the community. So we also give points to properties that support major trail systems that offer those trails um, either a, a place that would make the use of that trail safer. So we've worked with trails, um, trail networks to get them off of a dangerous public road, for example, or to take them to a beautiful scenic overlook. Um, and we also work with federal and state entities that prioritize different regions. So the Federal Highlands region is a priority for us to work in, as well as the state designated Susquehanna Riverlands Conservation Landscape. And so all of those categories together equal 100 points. And we score every single property in our service area based on that, that ranking system. Thank you. So Annie, going back to you, you had talked about, uh, I'm curious the, what would be the policy implications for land use management based on how you're seeing the streams changing over time. Is there something that you, you said you were talking about talking with farmers about their agricultural practices? And, I mean, sure. Ultimately, you would like to have um, all the streams restored in the in the watershed. So right now, there is one stream reach, one of the ones that I looked at, that's just gone through a restoration project in 2019, um, and so that that pretty dramatically changed the actual pattern of the stream, which was I was surprised about. But and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out into the future. But but certainly restoration projects, um, I think ones that really understand the dynamics of the streams are, are the highest priority, but those are kind of expensive. That often involves the removal of some of the legacy sediment to reestablish the equilibrium between the streams and the floodplains, for example. But even just planting tr trees along stream banks is, is probably helpful, though not optimal. Um, so, you know, ultimately, if we can identify streams that are the ones that are the most impacted in the watershed, those should be prioritized in terms of restoration. But, you know, restoration projects are just like, you know, land acquisitions. It's, you gotta find the landowners who are, who are interested and prepared to be involved in that. Um, not everybody, you know, has the, uh, is, is necessarily involved. So 
So again, in terms of things like stream restoration, you know, there's the the priorities part of it, but then there's also the opportunity part of, part of it. So, um, and and actually, that's probably the most one of the most interesting one of the things that I can learn from the conservancy because I'm pretty sure they're, you know, they they're on the ground there and they kind of know the watershed and the and the players in the watershed well. So. Um, I think that's one way that I could really benefit from from work that I've been doing and sort of prioritizing areas and thinking about different areas based on their knowledge of of the community in the watershed. So now's a really interesting time for stream restoration and agricultural areas specifically because of all the attention the Chesapeake Bay cleanup is getting. Um, and Pennsylvania is getting a good bit of funding in Lancaster County specifically because of all the work that we have to do. To clean up our streams, we have you know over 600 miles of impaired waterways according to the DEP. Um, so we've gotten some some good funding. It's it's not enough, of course, but it's a start. And the Clean Water Partners are working hard to organize partners like Chesapeake Bay Foundation to do a lot, just un, unimaginable amounts of tree plantings along some of these areas. So um, that work's going to go a long way. And and this work that is being done in this study could help you know, target some of those areas and some of that funding that we do have. You answered one of my questions. Um, I'm curious, I was curious about the, the, the size of the problem. So you're saying there's 600 miles of impaired waterways. What percentage of waterways in, the, uh, in Pennsylvania does that constitute? Well, so I'd have to do some, some digging in the data for that, but I think in Lancaster County, about 50% of our streams are impaired according to DEP. Um, and there's 19,000 miles total of impaired streams in the state. So, I mean, that's a fairly large number relative to the rest of the state. And it's, and it really is a lot to do with the amount of agriculture that we have here. Um, and we have a really great agricultural community here, but you know, it's everything has good and bad parts to it. So, um, just working to sort of find better ways to do some of that stuff. What defines a stream as impaired? A lot of times uh, the DEP uses bioindicators to show that a stream is impaired. For instance, what little macroinvertebrates they find in the stream. There are certain little bugs that require a certain level of water quality to exist. And so that's oftentimes the easiest way to do it. But they also take chemical measures um, and physical measures as well. So what are the next steps, Andy? Next steps. Oh, well, I'm actually kind of, you know, because of COVID, um, that really restricted the work in the field. So um, I spent a little bit of time in the field with uh, one of the conservancy foresters and uh, I'd love to spend more time in the field and actually looking um, at some of these particular sites, especially now that I have a sense of it from, the, from afar, from the GIS perspective. Um, and um, I'd really like to spend a little bit more time in the, in the, in the conservancy preserves. Um, one of the challenges for the work that I've been doing is that it is far, most of those areas are forested, which means that it's difficult to see through the trees, honestly, just from a practical standpoint to see some of the things that I've been doing, but, but certainly that would be it. And then the research so far has raised some pretty interesting questions that I think can be addressed in combination with the GIS analysis and then also field observation. So, so I'm kind of excited, I, you know, I guess this, Grant was a seed grant, right? So it's a seed that means that it will grow into something <laughs> yes, exactly. bigger and better. So um, um, this certainly has sort of reinvigorated me into sort of looking, you know, close by here in Lancaster as opposed to uh, some of my research in Chile or even on Mars. So I'm excited about that. And, and I really do appreciate the help from the Conservancy. 
I would have hoped that we would have a bit more interaction and more student involvement, but I think that um, as a move forward, that can, that can really develop. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. We certainly can never have predicted what happened, you know, four months after we started these discussions. So I think we've, we've pulled through in the best way possible. But I'm really excited about, you know, depending on how long we can collect this data, a really, really good baseline for us for managing the properties and, and seeing how it changes with the different ways that we manage over time. That feature sounds really, really cool to me. Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Thank you, Nancy. You've been listening to Franklin and Marshall College's CISO's Research Spotlight. Every episode, we're going to highlight how FNM faculty collaborate with the Lancaster, Pennsylvania community to bring theory to practice. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can learn more about the center at www.fandm.edu backslash C-S-E-W-L. Thank you for listening.